Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. If you haven't already, please turn to your neighbor and say, Happy Easter. So we um, come to the end of Holy Week and what has been a really sweet week for us here at the church. I've watched all week as so many have served and prepared and gave to make this week happen. Uh, Many thanks to all of you who made that possible. It really has been a body effort. And of course, time would prohibit me from thanking everyone, staff, leaders, and folks of the church. We've had six services. We had our early morning service, our fifth service, and now our sixth one, all to help us to step into the last week of Jesus so that this day we may with joy celebrate the power of the resurrection at work in us. So uh, I often get asked, what are you going to preach about? It's kind of a no-brainer. If you haven't heard the readings, it, <laughs> I know, shocker, a uh, real surprise. Um, it reminds me of this camping story about Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and they set up their camp and constructed their tent, and they had an evening together and, of course, refreshed themselves with some beverages, and then they fell asleep, and in the middle of the night... Sherlock Holmes woke up and he looked up into the night sky and he noticed all of the stars and he dug his uh, elbow into Watson and he said, Watson, Watson, wake up, wake up. What do you see? And Watson woke up and he said, I see stars and stars and more stars. And Holmes says, well, Watson, what does that tell you? What does that mean? And he said, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions and millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Orologically, it tells me it's 3 a.m. in the morning. Meteorologically, it tells me it's going to be a beautiful day. And theologically, it tells me we're a small part of the great whole of creation. What does it tell you? Sherlock Holmes says, Watson, you idiot, tells me someone has stolen our tents. So what are we going to talk about on Easter Sunday? It's a shocker. We're going to talk about the resurrection. What else would we talk about? The most important, single most important event in human history witnessed. Let's pray before we start. Brothers and sisters, how fine a thing it is to move from festival to festival, from prayer to prayer, from holy day to holy day. The time is now at hand when we enter on a new beginning, the proclamation of the blessed Passover in which the Lord was sacrificed. We feed as on the Lord of life, constantly refreshing our souls with his precious blood as from a fountain that washes away our sins. Yet, we are always thirsting, burning to be satisfied. But he himself is present for those who thirst and in his goodness invites them to the feast day. 
our Savior repeats his words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So feed us and quench our thirst this day. Our good Lord, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've been traveling with us since September, uh, sorry, December, you know this day marks something very special, this day of Easter. If you're visiting, as Drew mentioned, we're really glad you're here, glad that you've come to be with us today. If you've also been walking us with us through Holy Week, Palm Sunday and then Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and last night, we watched six people baptized by the power of the Spirit right here last night and concluded after midnight shouting, Christ the Lord is risen today. And everyone said, the Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So the single most significant event in human history is recorded in Luke chapter 24. And it starts off this way. I'm going to focus on these two verses. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. There's three things that I think are worthy in these phrases. First, some women took spices. I'll talk about that in a second. Secondly, they found the stone rolled away. And third, they did not find the body of Jesus. So I'd like to help flesh out what these mean and particularly the significance of what the resurrection means for us sitting here today, regardless of what, where you come from and where you are today. Here's some key thoughts. First of all, because the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead, we are set right with God, with creation, and with each other. And secondly, because of the resurrection, because it's true, and we believe it's true, we then who believe it's true are sent out to proclaim him as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the bright morning star and the author of salvation and the perfecter of our faith. And lastly, because the resurrection is true, it is the single most important pursuit in this life that we are called to seek his face and to hear his voice. So I hope to bring this out for us this morning. Let's start first with the women. It says some women took spices. The text actually says very early in the morning, some women took spices. Here's why. They did not be, want to be caught during the daylight, especially around the nature of this person, Jesus, and his trial and his death. But the reason they got up early in the morning and went to anoint his body is they thought Jesus was in the grave. This brother, this rabbi, this son whom they loved was dead. And where do you find the dead? But in the grave. They saw him killed with their own eyes. They knew he was buried. So it was very obvious they went in the early morning not to be seen. But what happens next, I think, epitomizes the whole ministry of Jesus. I know this to be true. Most leaders, generals, powerful people, political people, as they move up the ladder, they begin to associate with other powerful people. You can say it this way. It is what it is. The more you go up, 
the more you find higher-ups as your peers. Not so with Jesus. His friend were sinners and tax collectors, the sick, the grieving, the outcasts, God-seekers, the poor, the marginalized, the children, and lastly, the women. Now, I cannot stand here and tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that I can prove the resurrection is true because the resurrection is a past event. I believe it's true, but like the wind, I can tell you that's what the wind does when it works. So we see that no credible thinking person who wanted to fabricate a myth or a hoax would have made women the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. A woman's testimony was not admissible in any way. In the Talmud, which is a Jewish theology book, it gives rules governing who provides written or oral testimony. A valid witness in the Jewish house of judgment or the Jewish court must be an adult free man, not a woman or a slave, and not to be related to any of the other witnesses or judges. The general law was this. In many sections of our law, the condition of women is weaker than that of men. Moreover, in Jesus' day, women were excluded from all public functions and rights. So raise your hand if you're under the age of 13. Now, some of you may go, I'm young, I'm of no significance. Uh, a few years ago, my son and I were arguing about who owns his iPhone. <laughs> and a lawyer reminded us that until he's no longer a minor, he cannot own real property by the law. North Carolina section something something, and he quoted it verbatim. And I was like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> That's all I needed. Most women could not have charge of another person, could not function as witnesses, whether the drawing up or of a last will or in any form of the law. Women were reckoned with minors, slaves, the dumb, and criminals to be incapable of being any witness. Women could not start a court case without being represented by a man. Historian Rodney Stark tells us in Jesus' day, it was legal and accepted by all social classes for parents to abandon unwanted female infants, as well as deformed male infants. It was endemic in their culture. In one community record, no more than six of 600 families reared more than one daughter. In Greece, we actually have a written letter from a husband on travel to his pregnant wife to take good care of their baby son until he returns. However, he says, if you give birth to a girl, she is to be discarded. The impact of Jesus on Roman, Greek, and world culture today is staggering. Another historian, Anthony Esselton, summarizes the Christian view of woman. Women, He says, Christians did not expose baby girls or boys. They did not divorce their wives. They shunned sexual practices that put them or their spouses at risk. They honored women who defied emperors, centurions, and soldiers to witness to the faith. If all Jesus did was live and die, the world has been drastically changed. 2.2 billion people are saying hallelujah today. If this is the way it is, then there's something pretty significant about this gospel account that I would call your attention to. 
Why is it so important that Luke records it was the ladies who were there first? Here's why. At every turn, Jesus Christ was willing to correct and expose the culture of the day for its values that were opposite of the kingdom of God. In his ministry, Jesus radically affirmed the full dignity of women and the vital value of their witness. This is why today Western nations lead the world in arguing for the full dignity and equality of women, because the Christian faith was foundational in their history. This is one of the most attractive qualities of Jesus. He elevated all people, especially those in the margins. Secondly, in all honesty, it was the women who did not desert their Savior. During his ministry and even in his burial, they never stopped serving him. We see from the Gospels, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Josie's, Joanna, Salome, and the mother of all the apostles, and Mary and other women who followed Jesus out of Galilee. On this Easter morning, they came with spices to anoint and to prepare his body for burial. They came because he loved them deeply, and they knew it. Third, it is a powerful apologetic reminder of the accuracy of the resurrection. If these were stories that someone sat down to make up, they would have never chosen women to be the first eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. And what did these women find? they found a stone rolled away. They were the first witnesses to the singularly most significant event in human history. On May 2nd, 2011, Osama bin Laden, as we know, the chief architect of the September 11th attack, was killed by the United States military. There were some photos taken of his death and some accounts written, and his body was disposed of at sea. It was as dignified as you can make a death. But make no mistake, it was purposely conveyed to make one point. We got the guy. We got him. In the ancient days, when kings and leaders dispatched their enemies, they displayed them for days, for weeks, for months, and some for years. So anyone making a threat on their leadership would be reminded, this is what happens to you if you mess with us. You see, a dead body is a convincing action of victory. Last summer, Angela Kay and I were um, in Israel, and the funny thing about Israel is, is they nuance everything by saying, we think Jesus was here. There's only one place that they could say, we know for certain he stood here, and that's in Magdala, which was discovered only about 10 years ago. So there's two places where they say are Jesus's tomb. One of those places is the main road into Jerusalem, which meant anyone crucified along that road would have been seen visibly and publicly by all who enter and exit Jerusalem. This is why the writer of Hebrews says that let us then go outside with him to the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. 
One of my favorite preachers, teachers, pastors is a lady named Fleming Rutledge. She says this, Jesus was put to death publicly and with impunity. His execution was carried out by all the best people, representatives of the highest religious and governmental authorities. Not even the most famous martyrdom sink to the level of public degradation and contempt associated with crucifixion. Crucifixion as a method of of, was designed not only for the display of a human being in, ex, in, in crucifixion, but it was also excruciating pain. In fact, the word excruciating comes from literally a cross. More to the point, it was intended as the ultimate in public dehumanization. Crucifixion was reserved for the lower classes. It was never used by the Romans for executing people who had occupied high positions. Roman citizens were never crucified. Unlike many famous executions in history, such as those of Lady Jane Grey and Mary Queen of the Scots, who were executed privately, Crucifixion was an open public spectacle staged for the express purpose of degrading the victim. But on this morning, the stone was rolled away. Listen to verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Isn't this the question of all humanity? Why do we search out for life out of something else or someone else? Why do you look for life in things that can never give you life? Why are you here at the grave looking for the dead? They say in verse 6, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Verse 8, then they remembered his words. This is such a great sentence, they remembered his words. Think about how much we forget. I can't even remember my children's names anymore. How much we choose not to know the things we wish we could understand You'd think when Jesus said, hey, gang, listen, I'm going to go into Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. It's okay. I'm going to come back. I'm going to be raised on the third day. The disciples would have said, give us a front row ticket. Come on, let's go with you. No, they could not believe this reality of their Savior. No one wanted a crucified Messiah. It's a contradiction to anyone, even today. It certainly would have been thought offensive and foolish, which is why on this Easter morning, the women did not find the body of Jesus. And then they remembered. You see, when we forget, we miss Jesus. The Roman army was precise, it was cruel, it was efficient, and it was effective. It's always amazing how this time of year, they'll trot someone out who'll say something like this. Some expert or guru, they have letters in front of their name, letters after their name. They've written books, they do seminars. They'll say something like this. 
You see, what happened was the soldiers fell asleep. No, they did not. Or no, they'll say, wait, the body was stolen. No, it wasn't. Paul records and the gospel writers record that Jesus appeared to at least 513 people. The disciples, they'll say, wanted Jesus to be alive so bad that what they had was not a bodily resurrection. He didn't raise from the grave. It was like a spiritual resurrection. They wanted to believe he was the Lord. And so kind of like when we go back to someone's grave and we put flowers on them and we remember their life, this was the resurrection in their heart. Not at all. That's foolish thinking. This is why the Apostle Paul says it this way. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. If it's not true, waste of time. And then he, he just takes it one step forward. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still dead in your sins. You're still the same person who can't change year after year. And then he says, if we'd hoped in Christ only in this life, kind of some antiseptic for this life, kind of like, I'm going to hope, think positive thoughts. You know, God's resurrected, and, and whether it's true or not, it helps me cope. If that's true, Paul says, then of all people, you are to be pitied. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. After Jesus' death, the disciples didn't sit down and concoct some story. How are we going to steal this body and, you know, walk him around town and maybe use ventriloquism so people will think he's really alive? Sometimes the most obvious thing is the point. The women came to the grave that morning because they did not anticipate a resurrection. They came looking to find a body. But on that Sunday, following his death, the sight of him alive produced in their faith and in his words and in his person. So, this is the power of your faith today. Our faith is based upon a buried and resurrected Lord and nothing else. It is not based upon what you think, how you feel, what you say, or even how you live. Our faith is based upon a person named Jesus who was murdered and three days later walked out of the grave into eternity and into our hearts. This fact is so unique that it sits in a completely different category from all other religious traditions and philosophies. There is nothing else in human history like this story. This week on Tuesday night, our family went to see the movie Breakthrough. We made the mistake of going at night, which means it's about 100 bucks or something for us to all go, oh, should have gone to the 4 o'clock. It's the story of John Smith. I'll put his picture on the screen. John Smith, as a 14-year-old boy, fell through the ice on a lake in St. Louis and was underwater for 20 minutes. And for another 23 minutes on his way to the hospital and in the ER room, he was without brain activity and a pulse. Those of you in the medical field know he was dead. He recovered 
And today, he's running around the world preaching, miraculously alive and restored to normal. The movie is about it. It's a miracle that he has survived. But make no mistake, his story, as miraculous as it is, is simply a story of resuscitation. No one could have endured the cruel death of Jesus, spent a few days in a tomb, and walked out alive, unless they were raised by God. And the fact that there is nobody in the grave is your hope in this life and your joy. If you're looking for something else or someone else for it, it is only for a moment. And to quote one of my favorites, the rock group Kansas, I close my eyes only for a moment, and then the moment's gone. That's life. But what does the resurrection mean? Here's what it means for us today. Because the resurrection is true, and Jesus walked out of that grave, we are set right with God now, last Sunday, some of you who weren't here, we took notice. We do take roll. We keep a chart. Some of you are at home watching the Masters. And last Sunday, Tiger Woods won the Masters. Ten years ago, he was devastated in life by his unhealthy actions. As a man struggling with deep addictions, he lost his wife. He lost soul custody of his children. He lost sponsors to the tune of millions of dollars. Shortly after that, his health failed and he nearly lost his career. Last week, most of the world cheered for Tiger Woods to win. Why? Because we love the story of redemption. And as great a story as it is to watch this man who had recovered and changed and overcome and to some degree repented of his actions. To watch him win was a great celebration, but I want you to know something. It is nothing in comparison to being set right with God for eternity. When I was 19 years old, I would have been the kid some of you parents would have pointed to, and I knew some people who were parents the boast, and they would have said, well, maybe they wouldn't have said this, but some would have said, you know, that Alan, he's good people, as we say in Oklahoma. He's a moral kid. He's nice. He tries hard at school. What a good kid. But the reality of the story was, behind the scenes, I wasn't. I hated people. I wasn't moral. I was just smarter than the people around me not to get caught. By 19, I had numerous things that were tearing at my soul. I couldn't shake them. And no matter what I did, whether I achieved here or did this or went there or had someone say, well done, no matter what I did, it never took away this emptiness until a friend boldly and graciously sat with me and shared. And what did he tell me? He told me about the resurrection of Jesus. He told me that Jesus was raised from the dead, and because he's raised from the dead, I can be set right with God. And for the last 30 years, that has been my sole aim, to grow in understanding 
the depth of the gospel message. By his stripes, we are healed. But more than that, we're healed emotionally and spiritually. We're forgiven, we're made new, we're made clean, we're born again. If this story is true, then you can know God and you can experience, even today, true love and true community with him. The things you would never tell others you have done are wiped away. Now, I know there's a lot going on in Holy Week, and on Good Friday service, we have a tradition here. We lay a cross down, and we put hammer and nails and paper and pen, and we let everyone who desires to come write something on those pieces of paper and nail them to the cross. And the sound is eerie sitting here listening over and over and over to hammer, hitting nails, and driving paper into a wooden cross. We take all those things and we read them and tweet them. No, we take all those sins and we put them in a bag. And on Easter vigil at 10 p.m. last night, we placed them in a fire pit and we burned them. Because it's a picture of what God does with us, the things in our life. The prophet Isaiah says this, come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be made like wool. Because the resurrection is true then, and if this has happened to you, you are sent out to proclaim that Jesus is the risen king. He is the Lord of lords. He is the author of salvation and the perfecter of our faith. Regardless of your theology on this, these women are the first preachers and the apologists for the faith. If the resurrection is true, then it is the most important thing to discuss. It's the most important topic. The Christian faith exploded into the world and changed the world as we know it today simply because it was powered by this message. Jesus was crucified and raised on the third day, period. You got something better to brag about? Bring it to the table. This is more important than your politics, your accomplishments. Okay, shout out to the University of Virginia. Congratulations. But it's way more important than what your kids do, your hobbies, because if this resurrection is true, this matters above all else. Lastly, because of the resurrection, the single most important pursuit in life for you and I is seeking the face and hearing the voice of Jesus. What do you think got these women up early on Sunday morning? Simply this. The love of Christ had touched them, had saved them, had changed them, had drawn them into his midst, and they were not the same. In the Greek language, there are four kinds of love. There are four words. We use one, L-O-V-E, and it means all sorts of terms. But in the Greek, they have four different dimensions of love. And here they are. The first one is phileo. It's brotherly love. It's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, although it's not. But that's another sermon. So brotherly love, this kind of affection, friendship, we're pals, that sort of thing. The second word is eros. It's where we get erotic. I'd say it's, this is the best definition I can come up with. Oh yeah, he or she looks good. That's eros. 
The third word is stego, which means familial love, like a mom has for her kids, or a husband has for his wife, or brothers sometimes have for their sisters. Um, it, it can be described this way. Blood is thicker than water, but the last word is the deepest word. It's agape. It's unconditional love. And this is what I know after living 49 years. If you have tasted agape, if you have tasted unconditional love, it's like the drug of all drugs. You cannot get enough of it. You'll never be satisfied by other loves, even as beautiful as they are. This is what woke these women up. They experienced the unconditional, redeeming love of the Lord Jesus. We'll sing in a minute. The tomb where the soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed the grave. Our God has robbed the grave. And his name, his very name, is victory. And all praise will rise to Christ our King because his name is victory. Christ the Lord is risen today. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.